Hello, everyone. Weston Nakamura from BlockWorks Macro in Tokyo. It is Friday, April 21st, 2023 at Asia Markets Close. Welcome to the Market Depth Podcast, bringing you global market commentary and analysis from the Asia Pacific trading session so that you know what happened overnight. Today, we will do an overview of the week out of Asia, and we're going to just basically do a deep dive into macro data out of China's GDP beat and retail sales beat uh, from this Wednesday and policy and market implications potentially. Uh, as well as Japan CPI data out this morning showing inflation remains sticky and what I'm going to be looking for heading into next week in which the Bank of Japan will hold its first meeting under new leadership. Okay, so first of all, China GDP. Very strong, okay? 4.5% is the reading that came in this week. That's well above expectations. Um, and this is the first GDP reading after having fully scrapped you know, COVID zero policies. Um, so as strong of a reading as it is, however, it doesn't necessarily reflect strength in global growth. China GDP upside has been largely domestic consumer driven. Okay, so if you take a look at also retail sales, which also came out this week as well, retail sales were also very strong, 10.6% uh, uh, versus expectations of 7.4%. So again, beating expectations to the upside, um, but this was also very much services driven as well, okay? And so it's kind of very selective um, where this growth is coming from. Um, so as I kind of discussed this last week, right? China's like post COVID zero recovery is very unequal as in it's like the, it's the wealthy that are spending and consuming and the rest are, you know, less so. Uh, China has a very large income and wealth inequality. It's really no different from the other developed nations. Um, and the recovery is is showing that. And so that's why last week I touched on like LVMH blowout earnings due to strong sales from China, you know, demand for luxury goods, right? So if you look at this table from Sofia Horta y Costa from Bloomberg, you'll see a, you know, like this is kind of a breakdown of consumer spending and, you know, demand growth, right, in different sectors broken down. And you'll see outlier strength in jewelry up 37%. Okay, so this is further backing, you know, this this concept of an unequal recovery um, within China within, within a broader theme of domestic consumer-driven GDP growth out of China rather than a reflection of external, broader global growth um, that is fueling China GDP to the upside. Now, as I also mentioned uh, last week, China G GDP is made up, okay? But by no means is it therefore useless. China GDP is a guidance tool for policy. Okay, so on the back of this strength, we're now seeing and hearing rumblings out of the PBOC that they basically may start to gradually scale back its stimulus going forward. Um, and just a reminder that the PBOC had injected a massive amount of liquidity last quarter, or really since last December. Um, and so that, along with the PBOC, <clears throat> along with the Bank of Japan combined, uh, had injected in enough liquidity to offset that of what the Fed and the ECB uh, had been doing in terms of contraction. So obviously, if the PBOC is talking about scaling back stimulus and liquidity, then that is something to note for risk assets that had largely been driven, um, arguably, by these net liquidity injections out of Asia. Um, and indeed, yesterday, the PBOC kept their one-year and five-year loan prime rates unchanged in line with expectations. So big takeaway from China data release this week, net-net 
may not be positive for global markets because one, again, this is a growth from within rather than a global growth reading. And two, this could lead to PBOC scaling back stimulus. Okay, now on to Japan inflation. Headline CPI for Japan came in today for March 2023 at 3.2%, and that's just below the 3.3% previous, so slight decline, I guess, month over month. Core CPI, which is CPI X fresh food, that was 3.1% year over year, unchanged from previous, um, and in line with expectations. So from these figures, it would seem that inflation in Japan is moderated, um, or at the very least is no longer rising as it had been for months prior. However... If we look at core core CPI, which strips out fresh food and energy, we are at 3.8% year on year and higher than the 3.5% previous reading. And so the, so core core CPI is maintaining its upward trend for now, I believe it's the 10th consecutive month. So, you know, on a broad view, it's the energy component that has capped CPI figures in the last two months. And this is by and large due to um, government subsidies for energy, which had to, you know, began to show up in the data as of late over the last two readings, that is. Okay, so before we start to jump on the, so there is like, you know, real inflation happening in Japan, um, you know, X energy and all that, especially in fresh food and all that kind of thing. Yes, there is. However, let me just uh, give you a, you know, different perspective, if you will, that you'll likely never hear of outside of Japan, maybe even within Japan. Um, now, this is idiosyncratic, but nonetheless, so something I want to share. There's a fast food chain called Nakao in Japan. It basically specializes in what's called Oyakodon, which is basically chicken and egg over rice dish, is what it is. Um, it's very delicious for those of you who had it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's very effective post hangover food, so I'm told. Um, but yeah, the, their main sort of thi dish is this oyakodon dish, which is, uh, which has you know egg as a, a major part of it, right? Now, as we all know, also egg prices have been going up everywhere, um, considerably, right? Egg inflation and all those memes that you see, right? So, you would think that this chain of restaurants that specializes in this particular dish, having egg input costs go up, I mean that must be terrible right for its margins and they're gonna have to increase like their you know the sticker price on for their for their customers well zensho holdings that's the parent company uh they recently came out and said that not only are they not going to increase prices and not only are they not going to keep prices steady but they are going to be cutting prices to their customers uh for this particular dish that involves you know this this egg dish right um and the the thought process or what they're saying is that they're going to absorb the cost increase of their kind of raw material if they will their wholesale cost of eggs or whatever they're going to absorb that cost increase by increasing the number of customers via lowering prices okay so this might be idiosyncratic in a sense that I mean, it was idiosyncratic enough for to make, you know, uh, a newspaper headline, I suppose. But by no means is this like uh, some sort of outlier way of thinking. This is the exact sort of mindset that had propelled Japan's deflation for so many decades. It's not about like external growth of the pie. It's the mindset is that of 
the pie size is fixed if not shrinking and so it's about grabbing market share and not increasing the size of the overall pie and that leads that's basically kind of deflationary not just mindsets but behaviors okay again this is we're, we're seeing like ppi or like wholesale cost inflation input cost inflation in this case egg inflation and what do we what do we see in response we see cutting of prices cutting further into margins that's how they believe that they will be profitable to get more customers in the door with lower prices not by increasing um, prices on customers but either way however you want to slice and dice japan cpi figures via eggs or otherwise japan inflation rates are far above the two percent cpi target that the bank of japan's radical easing efforts aim to attain um it has been for some time and yet here we are boj policy remains in place for now now the market reaction upon the release of japan cpi today was muted and the reason is there was basically muted market reaction um is largely because First of all, the reading itself wasn't a huge deviation from expectations, um, but also because either one, you know, the like more market participants out there are getting the message that for the time being, Japan's CPI data is not what is dictating BOJ policy, um, at least up, up until recently, right, including the December 2022 yield curve control change. Okay, so it's either that or two. Simply, nobody knows how macro data will translate to policy ahead of an untested new Bank of Japan under this brand new Governor Ueda. Okay, so as such, JGB's JGB yields have by and large just traded alongside um, its GM peers, namely U.S. Treasuries, um, as they have been for uh, you know the, the last several weeks. Um, and this extends to the yen as well. You can see uh, this chart of two-year U.S. Treasury futures and yen futures. They are moving pretty much in lockstep. And so on that, you know, let's take a look at the kind of recent price action in dollar yen, um, which again, indeed has been driven by the USD side of the pair of USD JPY. Okay, what's happening in US yields um, and then developments with Fed policy expectations and, and so on and so forth, right? Now, there still does remain the, you know, the, the element of the uncertain upcoming BOJ policy overhanging. Okay, and so thereby that makes dollar yen at the moment like you know a less good reading on Fed policy than it was uh, through much of 2022, when dollar yen price direction was almost a pure gauge of Fed policy, right? And the reason that why that was was because if dollar yen um, or any major currency pair, but basically if dollar yen is a reflection of yields um, and central bank policy divergences between two countries um, and JGB yields and the Bank of Japan were static and standstill, as it were, in 2022, then the yield and policy divergence reflected in dollar yen was almost a pure reflection of, you know, the USD and Fed side of the pair. And so that's why dollar yen, this is why I'm saying that in 2022, that was a pure reflection, dollar yen was a pure reflection of uh, a Fed trade. But now we not only have the USD and the Fed part of the pair uncertain, and then separately from that, we have extreme rate volatility that's been, you know, uh, exhibited in markets. But we also now have the JPY part of the pair, um, you know, pricing to, to potentially also be not so static, right? And and so therefore, because there are now two variables rather than one, that's why dollar yen price action is currently not as clear a read on, you know, just being a pure Fed trade, right? And given the banking crisis in the U.S., the regional bank earnings that are coming out, you know, 
it's all that's been adding to even further uncertainty of near-term Fed policy, as in, you know, like if if credit conditions tighten in the U.S. because of because of what's happening with U.S. banking, um, and thereby doing the Fed's job for it, if you will, that may allow for the Fed to pause on on rate hiking. But at the same time, inflation still remains too high in the U.S. as well, and so that makes for near-term policy uncertainty for both the USD and the JPY side of dollar yen. Um, and it could be any combination of the respective policies and market reactions uh, that, you know, shift dollar yen in terms of directional price action, right? So if we get a hawkish Fed relative to an unchanged Bank of Japan, as it was in 2022, that would be dollar yen upside. If we get both the Fed and the BOJ on pause as is, uh, that likely will be dollar yen downside um, as, you know, hawkish Fed gets priced out and yield spreads may narrow. Um, and then if we get, you know, global central banks at uh, the end of their hiking cycles and potentially cutting rates, and if that's happening just as BOJ is about to begin or begins or is perceived to begin a uh, rate hiking policy or tightening cycle, you know, then you're going to see massive JPY strength or other currencies collapse versus the yen. And then that can be a big problem for risk assets. Um, one of the reasons being that things like yen carry trades uh, begin to unwind. Yen carry trades is basically borrowing in yen rates to go long others. Um, and then that's not even to mention like the rates angle, right, of, you know, rates shifting upwards um, and getting uh, having risk assets get hit uh, as a result of that. So if you are to trade this, especially via currencies, dollar, yen, USDJPY may not be the way to do so. Um, in terms of you think that there's going to be a Bank of Japan policy shift as in yield curve control gets lifted or eliminated altogether, that would be both for JPY strength. Um, you know, US JPY downside might not be the way to play it. Rather, Euro JPY, EUR JPY might be a better way to do it because of the fact that you have policy divergence between the ECB and the BOJ more pronounced in terms of currencies than uh, it is from a USD JPY standpoint. Euro JPY cross has basically gone back to flat since the massive yen short covering um, and the yen strength that had begun uh, in late October when the Ministry of Finance uh, in Japan had unilaterally blasted dollar yen down and therefore put the bottom in uh, in yen weakness for the year. Okay, and then lastly, I just want to comment on corporate behavior um, as we head into Bank of Japan week next week and what certain sort of corporate behavior might indicate in terms of near-term policy uh, decisions that come out of the Bank of Japan. So... I'm sure that most of you are aware now of like my conspiracy theory of uh, <laughs> of Warren Buffett and his recent trip to Tokyo that he made, uh, where he, you know, he he had come with the with the real purpose of his visit, his physical coming from Omaha all the way over to to, to Tokyo for like you know two or three days or whatever it was. The real purpose was to like to check in, check in with like the new Bank of Japan leadership who started on the same exact day that he was here um, and doing so to, you know, get a gauge of whether JPY rates will be increasing in the near term or not. Um, after a decade of free Kuroda money that helped fund his Japan investments in these five trading houses, um, which he said that, th that his real reason was to, to visit was these, you know, five trading houses, CEOs 
yeah, that's. I think that there was something else going on there, right? What, whatever it may be, um, first of all, just so everyone's clear, okay, as I also stated in my tweet, the term tinfoil hat means this is nonsense theory, okay? This is not my actual core thesis by any means. It's just a, a thought to put out there. Um, but nonetheless, after I talked about Berkshire indeed having issued more JPY bonds, um, be it ahead of BOJ by coincidence or not, this is just some more kind of corporate behavior that I want to mention as of late, okay? And note that I tweeted about these respectively as they were announced uh, in the past, and this is all before this like Warren Buffett visit. But basically, you have you have two kind of uh, key headlines. First of all, Ken Griffin Citadel, okay, is returning to Japan and reopening a Japan office in Tokyo. Um, and this is after being gone since the 2008 crisis. So now, of all times, they're coming back Citadel. Then you have. Steve Cohen's 0.72, and they have announced that they're going to be beefing, beefing up their Tokyo presence, uh, their Japan presence, and their Tokyo office as well. And Steve Cohen basically saying that there's great value in Japan. Now, what do these two, what do, what does Citadel and 0.72 increasing their sort of Japan presence and exposure and activity, what do they have to do with the Bank of Japan? Probably nothing, okay? But maybe something. Either way, question is, how would a Citadel or 0.72 be related to the BOJ policy if it were to be at all. So, first of all, I don't know with regard to Citadel, right? I don't know if Citadel refers to the hedge fund or Citadel Securities, the market maker, okay? But either way, both in different ways, but they, they both benefit from broader equity market activity and volatility to a certain extent, okay? So that's for Citadel. For 0.72... Um, they're by and large, they're a long short equity fund, right? In, in Tokyo. And so if they're a long, long, short fund, right? They're long XYZ short ABC, um, pair trading, right? Th those like fundamental differences amongst company stocks that allow for you long short strategies to exist in the first place. Um, those differences are exposed when the QE blanket gets lifted, right? When there's QE, it it papers over everything, and so it's very difficult to discern um, what are you know terrible companies and what are less terrible, right? And so long short strategies don't really, uh, you know, not I won't say serve a purpose, but they can't really exploit those differences. But if the view is that the Bank of Japan is about to go on a Kiwi removal period and expose the zombie crap from you know that that which has growth potential, um, that brings stock pickers back in. Be that. Be they, you know, levered long short funds like 0.72 to Citadel to Berkshire Hathaway. So major foreign asset managers are behaving e either completely independently, coincidentally, and unrelated, um, or are independently but still sharing a view. Um, but they're behaving in a way that says that Japan monetary policy is about to change um, and are taking action as a result. Um, and then finally, just back to, to Buffett, right? So in the last two weeks, since the, t the, the time when he was here and since he was publicly in media, right, we are now seeing a massive inflow of foreign buying in Japan equities to the tune of over 4.2 trillion yen in the past two weeks, um, which is the largest amount that of uh, foreign buying in, in Japan equities um, since the start of Chrononomics in 2013. It tops that level, okay? So that is what the BOJ gets in return. 
for meeting with Mr. Buffett or for free or, or otherwise. Okay, Nonetheless, you still see massive, massive amounts of foreign inflows into Japan equities over the last two weeks heading into uh, BOJ. Uh, finally, it's not just like foreign financiers that are now taking action, be they BOJ related or not. Um, so on Wednesday of this week, SMFG, Sumitomo Mitsui Financial Group, which is the second largest bank um, in Japan, uh, they became the first major financial institution, first major bank in the world to issue AT1 bonds since the Credit Suisse implosion, right? Uh, basically, they you have a complete freezing of the AT1 market across the world um, because Credit Suisse AT1 holders got completely screwed, whereas their equity holders got completely less screwed, I guess. Um, but you know, the entire market just froze up for AT1 uh, bond issuance. But SMFG this week sold bonds. They sold uh, in two tranches. They sold about 90 billion yen in five-year notes and about 50, 50 billion yen in 10-year notes. And each of those coupon rates, five and 10 years respectively, were higher than similarly issued AT1 bonds from December, you know, before yield curve control uh, went up and all that, right? So... One way to look at it, it is, uh, this is a quote from someone from Pictay Japan, who said, uh, SMFG had a choice of not selling them, but they went ahead, likely signaling that Japanese financial system may be more stable than uh, those in other countries. Maybe that may be, be the reason that SMFG is doing this, or maybe they too are locking in rates before they go up, or rather, before they go up even more. Okay, in other words, because... Either way, whatever their view of the, the BOJ may be, markets are pricing, market participants, buyers of these bonds are demanding higher yields and just, just in case BOJ does lift rates um, that they wouldn't get completely screwed. So markets, I mean, they're, they're paying market prices either way. So either they act now um, or they wait and just have the market continue to just, you know, demand higher uh, coupon in order for them to issue. Now, note that MUFG had suspended issuance um, of its AT1 bonds after Credit Suisse, but it was then kind of revealed that MUFG clients took a huge hit on Credit Suisse AT1s. Um, and so that could have influenced the decision for MUFG to hold off on their issuance, whereas SMFG had just gone right ahead, right? Um, MUFG has since said that they will you know, resume issuance of AT1s uh, in May. Um, so if we're reading from the, like the BOJ view perspective, SMFG is taking action now, BO, MUFG is waiting until after BOJ, and they may or may not be related to BOJ. I seriously doubt that they don't have the Bank of Japan in mind when they're making these decisions. Either way, the markets, be it the credit markets, um, you know, domestically, be it Warren Buffett um, and Berkshire Hathaway issuing uh, JPY bonds, be it Ken Griffin and Citadel, or 0.72, or whoever it is, collectively, they could have absolutely nothing to do with one another, right? Or the connecting tissue might be that they all have a view that things are about to change in, uh, in Japan in terms of monetary policy and change soon. So next week will be a major, major week for global macro, not just for Japan, um, as the Bank Japan meeting will wrap up on Friday, April 28th, with the first BOJ meeting to take place under a, br a brand new Bank Japan governor, Ueda. And so we shall see what happens, but if there's any week for you to pay attention to market depth, 
it is next week. So make sure that you have your notifications turned on. Make sure that you are subscribed. Follow me on Twitter at Across the Spread. I hope that you are all strapped in and ready. I certainly am. Have a great weekend, and we will see you on Monday.